Please take your Bibles and open them, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, This is going to be the second part in a brief series through Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. As you make your way there, I'm going to read this passage for you, just so you've got the context. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. This is God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, last week we saw from looking at verses 31 and 32 of this section of Romans chapter 8 that there were three basic elements of our assurance. It began first with the conclusion that we arrived at from looking at verse 31, where Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What is our conclusion? That these things, meaning everything leading up to this point in the book of Romans. The answer is that all of these things point to the reassurance that we are secured in Christ. And secondly, we saw our claim, and that came in the next part of verse 31, which said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, at first glance, we can say, well, a lot of people can be against us. In fact, the world, the flesh, and the devil are set against us. On one level, everything's set against us. The point, though, that Paul is making is that nothing that sets itself against us will ever be successful. God is for us. And therefore, no other opposition, no enemy, no threat will ever get to us. And then finally, our confidence. He is the one who is going to give us all things. He who didn't spare his own son. Uh, He who allowed his son to go through the very steps of the persecution and crucifixion that would result in our redemption didn't spare him any of that. In fact, he ordained it. In fact, he controlled it. In fact, the scripture says he he not only did not spare his son, but he crushed his son. And as a result of having proven that he would give us even his own son, how much more so then can we be convinced that he is going to graciously give us all the things that he has promised he will give to those whom he has adopted as sons. So, that is the basis of our assurance 
And based on everything that we saw last week, I can then tell you in verses 33 through 39, we have these three more blessed encouragements, three more incredible truths that, that will transform the way you look at the gospel if you truly understand them. And what we're going to do is spend the next two weeks looking at these three. Three life-transforming realities. It'll take two weeks to cover it. Number one, no one can accuse you of anything. Number two, no one can condemn you for anything. And number three, no one can separate you from the love of God. There is now, therefore, no accusation, no condemnation, and no separation. No accusation, no condemnation, and no separation. Let's look at these one by one. Number one, there is now, therefore, no accusation that will stand against you. He begins here in verse 33 by saying, What or who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can possibly bring a charge, he says? Who can bring anything before you that is going to stand up in court? The word charge here is an accusation. It literally meant to call somebody in, to summon you, to to subpoena you, to come in. It is putting you on trial. It is subjecting you to the accusations of those who would condemn you. It's your day in court. It implies there is a proceeding of some kind. In fact, it's uh, the same word that is used to describe uh, the whole scenario that happened in Acts chapter 19. You, You may recall in Acts 19... Paul goes to the city of Ephesus and he preaches the gospel. And he is so effective by the power of the Holy Spirit that hundreds of people begin repenting of their sin and coming to a knowledge of the truth and they are forsaking all of their idolatry. And and there's a particular silversmith in town, his name is Demetrius, and he was infuriated by Paul's gospel preaching. Because all these people were getting converted and they were abandoning their purchasing of idols and it was hurting his business. And so he gets a group of people together, a mob really, and he causes this riot in Ephesus. And everything is going crazy. People are rioting in the streets and (laughs) one of the verses I love is verse 32 where it says, most of them did not know why they had even come together. Just mob rule. We've seen examples of this, just mob violence. And finally, the county clerk steps in and in verse 38 says, if you have something against this man, someone bring a charge. He says, we have a system here. We have laws. We have due process. If you've got something against what this man is doing, bring a charge. That's the idea here that Paul says, When he says, who shall bring a charge against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? This is critically important for us to understand. Because you might say to yourself, wait a minute, does that mean that nobody can ever bring any kind of accusation against me? Does Does that mean that I can never do anything wrong? That I'm absolutely innocent at all times? Well, no, we need to clarify that for sure. In fact, how does this work in the life of a, of a believer? Well, first of all, let me tell you that this is talking about your ultimate security, the ultimate day when you will stand before the Lord. No one can bring a charge against you that will affect you eternally. But there's plenty that we can say about watching over one another in the here and now. 
we still need to challenge people sometimes. It's called discipline. I want to talk to you this morning about four examples of discipline. I thought this would be a good opportunity just to refresh your memory in case maybe this is something that you haven't studied for a while or or maybe you've never studied it. Maybe you've uh, never had a chance to, to look at this before. Well, this morning we'll do a brief overview. There are really four people mentioned in the Bible who receive discipline, receive correction. And really it all relates to the church. So there are those that are among the church, those that are over the church, those that are against the church, and those that are outside the church. That's how we can think about discipline. Those who are among the church, those who are over the church, those who are against the church, and those who are outside the church. The first group are those who are among the church. Even before the church was officially formed, uh, Jesus, when he talks about the assembly of his disciples, says uh, that if somebody has offended you, you go to your brother, your sister, one-on-one, and you rebuke them for their sin. Uh, That's the process. You go and you say to them, uh, you have sinned against me or you have sinned against the Lord, and I'm calling you to repentance. And if the person repents and you're restored, that's the end of the matter. I like to tell people uh, that church discipline goes on all the time around here, but you would never know it. Uh, Reason being that there is the proper exercise of one-on-one confrontation and repentance and forgiveness and restoration and relationships are repaired. However, if that person who has sinned does not repent at that point, you bring somebody else, you bring a witness. Now, just to be clear, that second person is not your friend, that second person is not your ally, Uh, that second person is somebody who before the Lord can say with all integrity uh, that the accusation that you brought is in fact true. They've witnessed it as well. They know it to be a fact. And then the two people go to that person and out of love for them, out of a desire to see them repent and be restored, they confront them. Remember, the the purpose of discipline is restoration. The purpose of discipline is not excommunication. It's to restore the wayward person. It's to repair the relationship. It's to rebuke and chasten and correct. It's to admonish. That's what we do for one another. Well, according to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, if the person rejects the two, well, then it goes to the church. Then the whole church is brought in because what you have is a person who is in the body of Christ. They are professing to be a Christian. They say that they're in an accountable, covenantal relationship with the rest of the body of Christ, and yet they they consistently sin, and, and they refuse to repent of it. They refuse to change. They refuse to submit to God's law. And if the person, though the whole church comes upon them and the whole church leans in on the situation and and brings the weight of the body down upon that person, imploring them to repent and be restored, if they continue to reject, then you treat them as somebody who's not a believer because clearly their life is proving that they never really were in Christ. That's how you deal with sin among the church. What about with those over the church? It's a different process when you talk about church leaders. Church leaders. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We don't often talk about this passage, but it's one that we should be familiar with. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And beginning in verse 19, it says, Do not admit a charge 
there's our word again, do not commit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In the case of somebody who is an elder of the church, a leader in the church, somebody over the church, uh, there's a very great risk that that person would continue in their sin and, and, and damage the health of the whole body. And so, well, of course, you can go one-to-one on that person. It's encouraged here to immediately bring two witnesses, and you bring a charge against that elder. Now, that elder, I don't believe, is the one receiving the charge here. I don't think you go to that elder. It seems to me like you would go to whomever that elder is accountable to. And in a healthy church, there will be a plurality of elders. A healthy biblical church has multiple elders And those elders would then receive that on the witness of two or three. That's using kind of Old Testament language. You need to back it up and validate it. Two or three need to have witnessed this and seen it. You don't go to everybody else in the church. You don't spread rumors. You go to the leadership with a specific charge. And it is backed up by those who would never want to say something is the case if it weren't for fear of falling under the judgment of God for bearing false witness. So that's how you deal with those who are over the church. Now, if the person proves to be guilty, verse 20, as for those, and this is a reference to those elders, who persist in sin, you rebuke rebuke them in the presence of all. You immediately rebuke them in the presence of the whole church so that the rest may stand in fear. Discipline brings fear. Ananias and Sapphira come to mind, Acts chapter 5. They sold a piece of property, which was their right to do. They decided to give the proceeds to the church, which was their right to do. They even chose to withhold some of it for themselves, which is also their right to do. The problem is that they had said they had given it all. And so Ananias comes in and God reveals to the disciples that he was lying And as a result of being confronted with this lie and admitting that he had sinned against the Holy Spirit, Ananias falls dead. His wife comes in later. They ask her. She backs up his story, and she dies too. And at the end of that section in Acts 5, it says, and everyone was filled with fear. That was not a good church growth strategy. That was a bad marketing plan. If your goal was to make everybody come to your church because they'd have all their needs met and they'd have a good time and it would be wonderful, uh, rumors get around pretty quick when you find out that members of the church were dropping dead simply on account of not telling the truth. That's how serious God takes it. Discipline is there to bring fear. Healthy fear, godly fear. So that's discipline among the church, discipline for those over the church. What about discipline for those against the church? Flip over to Titus chapter 3. Let's take a look at this. There's another example here. Some people, even within the church, you have to understand that because the church is so precious and so important and has such eternal significance, Satan is going to do everything in his power to sow tares among the wheat. There will always be a regular introduction of false believers into any church, and I would argue more likely than not in a local healthy church, because he seeks to destroy that which is fruitful and that which is honoring to Christ. And so 
Some will, will work their way in. Jude talks about them in detail in his little epistle. But here in Titus, Paul warns him as he's ministering in Crete that some are going to come in and they are going to be the, ty- the kind that want to, to argue and, and they want to get into controversies. These are the people that are always stirring up controversy, stirring up strife, stirring up debate, questioning everything, undermining leadership, undermining the direction of the church, um, everything that they can do to, to make you discontent in the church. I'm convinced that there are people who actually believe that their discontentment is a sign of discernment. Uh, that, that they think that because they can find something to complain about, it means that they can see things the rest of us can't. You know, they're, they're, they're here to keep an eye on, on things. And so they, they love to, to needle in and, and, and cause these little controversies and, and arguments and disputes and doubts. And sometimes that can elevate to the point where it really causes a great degree of strain and stress within the body. And so it can become divisive. And God hates divisive people. And so here in Titus 3.10, it says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Have nothing more to do with him. Romans 16 says that if you find people that are not upholding what is taught, what is true, if they're causing division, uh, the word is to avoid them. Distance yourself from them. Distance them from you. There is a very real sense there of being isolated because of the damage that you are doing. And then finally, those outside the church. So among the church, over the church, those who are against the church, and then those outside the church. And this might come as a surprise to you, but the way you discipline people outside the church is that you don't. Paul is very clear on this, and again, just so your eyes fall on it today, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I know this is a little bit of a theology lesson this morning, but I think it's uh, prudent for me every few months to review, make sure we're all on the same page with these things because it impacts our body life and we want you all to be aware of what the Bible teaches. These aren't my ideas. It's what the Holy Spirit through the inspired word tells us. But what do you do about all those people outside that are acting so, um, so badly? What do you do about all those, all those, all those wicked unbelievers? What do you do with all those sinners who are acting like sinners? Well, Paul says here in chapter 5, verse 12, that you ought not to be concerning yourself too much about that. He says, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, this is in the context of a sexually immoral person who was there in the church and Paul says, listen, you focus on the church. You focus on keeping the church pure. You focus on judging. You say, well, wait a minute, Jesus said, and the other said, don't judge lest you be judged. No, no, you judge, but you judge according to what is true and right. You judge according to the the process laid out for us in Scripture. You do judge, and you do identify who is evil, and if that person is not repentant, you do purge them out. But that doesn't apply to unbelievers. That applies to those who are in the church. So there is a pattern in Scripture for how to handle discipline from those among the church, over the church, against the church, and outside the church. Now back to Romans 
Paul says, you don't have to worry, therefore, about a charge coming against you that is going to have ultimate and eternal significance. All the charges we just talked about were the charges that come to you because as a sinner, you are still going to sin. And as John says to us in 1 John 1, 9, that's why you keep confessing your sin so that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you continually from all unrighteousness. There will be that regular pattern of confession and repentance and restoration. It's going to happen. You're not going to be fully perfected in this life. You're never going to be beyond sinning. However, every sin, every sin that could ever condemn you, every sin that could ever judge you, every sin that could ever be brought up against you in the divine court one day has been erased if you're in Christ. And his righteousness has covered you. Here's the point. No one can charge you in this life with any sin that has eternal consequences. And you know what? That extends to you as well. You can't even judge yourself. You know, sometimes our most harsh critic is the one living inside of us. Some of you came in here today maybe burdened with guilt, burdened with shame. Some of you have perhaps gotten used to going to church, carrying your shame with you only to have it made worse, and then you go back home feeling even more shameful than you did when you came in because all you seem to do is be reminded of all the ways you're falling short of what God expects of you. And I want to tell you this morning that that's not our culture here. I want you to come in, and if you're bearing the shame and you bear the the guilt, that this is where we gather to hear each other sing and pray and hear scriptures that remind us that in Christ you are forgiven, that that sin has been dealt with, that it is off of you, that it is put on to him, that it was nailed to the cross, that it went to the grave. It's over and it's dealt with and it's been paid for once and for all. Do you still sin? Of course you do. But you confess it and it's forgiven or you suppress it and it becomes exposed and you're chastened. But even that happens only out of love so that you will return, be restored, and be refreshed. As the song says, no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. And clothed in what? Righteousness divine. Clothed in that eternal righteousness. So, we're just supposed to let all of this go then. We're just supposed to let let go and and sort of uh, assume that when we stand before the Lord one day that all of our sin will have just been forgotten. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that when you go before the Lord, you kind of just stroll into the very throne room? You just stroll in before God, cocky and confident that he has just forgotten about your sin and ignored it and pretended that it wasn't there? No, that's not the case at all. You're not acquitted. You're not acquitted. You're not found not guilty. As a matter of fact, I think it's important for us to remember that on one level, the charges stand and the charges are there for a reason. In fact, we are guilty. In fact, we are condemned. But this is where the gospel comes in. The gospel says that because Christ became sin for us, that he took that sin and he put it upon himself and he bore the punishment. So the answer is, You are guilty, but you're redeemed by a substitute. You are guilty, 
You are not treated as if you have never sinned. You are treated as if you have sinned, but that that sin was placed upon a substitute and that substitute paid for it and you were given his righteousness instead. So we are actually declared holy, declared worthy, declared sons. Now, who's being accused here? Notice what he says. Who's going to bring a charge, bring an accusation against God's elect? Literally, the elect of God. That's the focus here. The elect of God. This means simply the chosen ones. The ones who have received the choosing of God. And the emphasis here in the original is a choosing based on personal preference. A choosing based on personal preference. Do you realize that God chose you if you're in him? If you're a believer, he chose you. He chose you. Not just a group of you. He didn't choose you because you chose him. He chose you. He created you. He fashioned you together. Brought you into this world. He ordained every day of your life up until the point when you believed the gospel. And that was because he chose you. He preferred to choose you. If you're a believer today, I want you to take a moment and just reflect on the glorious reality of that. Now, as we know, it's not meant to puff us up because there was nothing in us worth choosing. It's his electing love that he bestows upon us for his own mysterious purposes and ultimately for his own glory. But he chose. Jesus gives an amazing parable, kind of explains this in Matthew 22. You can follow this later, you can read it on your own, but in that, it's the, it's the story of the wedding feast, and I sort of call this the good, the bad, and the crafty. He, he says that there are these people that, that were to go and be invited to this wedding feast, and so he sends his servants out, and he goes, and, and he wants to bring in these people who were the elite ones, who were the, the important ones, the good ones, and so they go out there, and they invite them, but the people reject the invitation. This is meant to make the Jews realize he was talking about them. They rejected the invitation. In fact, even some of the servants were killed, like the prophets were when they brought the message of the coming Messiah. And so the master says, well, then go out there and go among the good and the bad and everybody and gather together all who will come. And so they go out and they bring as many as would come into the feast, and he sets them all there, and he, he covers them in the, the robes of those days. You didn't go to a wedding without being properly dressed. They would cover you in a wedding robe, and so there they all were. They were gathered together. They were enjoying the feast around the banquet table, and the master goes up to somebody, and, and he says, why are you here? You don't have a robe. You're not dressed for the occasion. That was symbolic of somebody who didn't have the righteousness to be there, wasn't clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, and as a result, uh, that person was bound up and thrown out into outer darkness. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying that only those whom he invites and only those whom he clothes are those who will enjoy his presence forever. Uh, You can't just get in because you want to. You get in because he chose you. Jesus says that in other places in the New Testament. You did not choose me, I have chosen you. And not one that God has chosen will ever be lost. We are his elect. We are his elect. 
In the Gospels, most of the time the elector mentioned are within the context of great tribulation. In fact, almost every time in the Gospels that the word elect is used, it's in the context of them in tribulation. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 18. Really, the only places in the New Testament where the elect are spoken of outside of that would be in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, where you see here, what are the expectations of those who are elect of God? Turn over to Colossians 3 and verse 12. Look at this passage. What does God expect of you if you are called out? If you are those who belong to him? Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You are chosen, the same word, elect, You are holy, that means set apart, sanctified, and you are beloved. You are chosen, you are set apart, and you are beloved. And therefore, as those people put on, demonstrate compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Scriptures end the picture of what it is to be among those victorious ones chosen by God, guaranteed to persevere until the very end. Revelation chapter 17, just listen to what he says in verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. Those who are with the victorious king, at the very end of all of redemptive history, the one who stand with him as he reigns over every power in heaven and on earth will be those who are called and chosen and faithful. These are the elect. These are the ones whom nobody can bring a charge against. These are the ones who belong to God. Why? Why? Because it is God who justifies. Look at the rest of verse 33. It is God who justifies. Literally, God is presently justifying. It's a participle. He is doing it right now. It is present. It is active. It is ongoing. He is at this moment justifying in the sense of covering, clothing, robing his people in his righteousness. So that as Satan brings continuous accusations against you, He is continually pleading his righteousness for you. Fifteen times Paul talks about this in Romans. In chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 8. And here in chapter 8 he rests his case on justification. He has made his point. Remember we talked about the process of redemption. That it was the father who planned it, the son who purchased it, and the spirit who produced it. It is a Trinitarian work that rescues you from the sin that would justly condemn. And so the Father then is the only one able to declare somebody righteous, and he does so by applying the righteousness of his Son. Now, therefore, no future accusation against us is going to stand. No charge against you is going to stand. The Father has made his choice, he's made his plan, he's made his declaration on the basis of what Christ has done, and He will echo what Christ said on the cross that it is finished. All of your sins are wiped away. 
He is our perfect substitute. He was predicted in the Old Testament through the prophecies, the covenants, and the sacrifices. He was realized in the new covenant when Jesus says to his disciples, there's a new covenant in my blood. He is explained in the New Testament writers, especially the book of Hebrews, and he is applied in the church through the ordinances of baptism and communion. We see a picture of what he has done for us, and we remember it when we gather. He was predicted in the Old Testament, realized in the New Testament, explained in the New Testament scriptures and applied in the ordinances. We see this over and over again. This is why it is so important for us as we gather to do those things. Now, that was the first point. No one can accuse. Let's look at the second one in verse 34. We'll go a little quicker. And no one can condemn. No one can condemn. This is literally the next step, logically the next step. Why? Because when somebody brings an accusation against you, maybe something could happen where on a technicality they couldn't offer all of their evidence and therefore you can't really be accused, but Romans says that your own heart accuses you, your own life accuses you. In fact, you were born knowing that you deserve the judgment of God. And so the condemnation would still remain. The condemnation here, by the way, just remember that, is punishment. Condemnation here is the actual exercising of the punishment, the execution. The focus is on the consequences of being found guilty. And we know in our hearts we're guilty. I had a friend who uh, I used to work with. She was our IT director. And... um, she left her post position at the church where I was working and she applied to the FBI and um, bumped into her a few months later. I think it might have actually been when she came to visit our church one time and uh, asked her how things went and, and she said that she um, wasn't able to get in. And I was very surprised because um, I thought she was very qualified and would be an excellent candidate. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, I couldn't pass the polygraph. And I thought, that's odd. Um, What were they asking you? (laughs) And she said, well, they asked me if I had ever committed a crime, a terrible crime. And she said, even though I knew what they meant, my own conscience, my own heart, couldn't let me say no because I know what I have done against God. And so she couldn't say no without triggering it as being a lie. You see, even though we're born again, built into us, hardwired into us, is the knowledge that we have committed sin against a holy God. And what does that mean for us? Well, what that means for us is that we are worthy of all of the judgment that would come down upon us that we are worthy of all the condemnation, all of the the judgment. And yet here what we read is that on account of Christ, all of that is thrown out. Not only are the accusations thrown out, not only are the charges thrown out at the first hearing, but even if any charge were to stick, there would be no execution because our substitute stands in our place and intercedes for us, saying, not only does my righteousness cover them and therefore they cannot be accused, but my sacrifice paid fully for their penalty so you may not execute them. Bear in mind, friends, 
that at this moment there is a just accusation being brought against you. There is just condemnation that could be falling upon you were you not in Christ. And, and yet, what's completely beyond our comprehension in this life is the knowledge that at this moment Christ is interceding saying, no, this person deserves condemnation, but no, I've paid for that. I died for that. I was condemned so that they don't have to be condemned. I was killed so that they don't have to be killed. I don't know about you, but I can't, I can't understand that. That he would, he would bear my penalty. He would bear my punishment. Pay it in full. So that there is now, therefore, no risk to me. Not only no risk that I could be charged, but no risk that I could ever be punished. It is once and for all settled. This is all through the book of Romans. We condemn ourselves, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. We are condemned because we see that in Adam we belong condemned. We, we see that condemnation is ours because of how we were born and what we were born into. And yet justification, he says over and over again, is what ends the threat of condemnation. Romans 8.1, in Christ there is no condemnation. Romans 8, chapter 3, Christ condemns sin by bringing it to the cross and letting the Father pour out his wrath upon it. Romans 14.23, Christ intercedes at the point of condemnation and he says, no, I have already suffered for that. It's settled. He was condemned so that we could be comforted. Look over at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Another illustration of this, beginning in verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 and following. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. See, Jesus told the disciples ahead of time, the condemnation that should fall on you is going to fall on me, that I will be delivered over at the will of my Father, into the hands of evil men who will condemn me to death, mock me and kill me, but in three days I will rise. That's the connection with the resurrection here in verse 34. He is connecting his condemnation to his resurrection. The fact that he was handed over and condemned and punished, the proof that that was sufficient to pay for everything that you and I would be required to pay was that he rose again. It is fulfilled. He fulfilled it so that it will never again fall on us. 1 Corinthians 11.32 We are disciplined, yes, but we are never condemned. So, the question is then, who can punish us? And the answer, no one. Because Christ already took that punishment for his sheep. And now he intercedes. 
I love this word, intercession. He is the one who stands in the gap. He is the one who appeals our case before the throne of God continuously. He is the one who will not let the innocent be punished. He is interceding constantly for us. Uh, he, he is the ultimate intercessor. You know, we had, had examples of that in the Old Testament. You've got Abraham, remember, who interceded for the city of Sodom, Genesis 18. Abraham, a man of faith, interceding for that wicked city where Lot was living. But he did that from a distance. Moses, he interceded for the people, Deuteronomy 9. But he wasn't willing to necessarily lay down his life. Esther, she was definitely an intercessor. She was willing to lay down her life for the Jews, but that was really because of them, not really for them. She couldn't stop what was happening. But what Abraham and Moses and Esther foreshadowed, Christ has done perfectly. He is the perfect intercessor, the one who is holy and just, the one who volunteers to intercede on behalf of the ungodly, the one who lays down his life and does so in a way that actually rescues the ungodly if they put their faith in him. And then, because of his work, he can say that there is now therefore no condemnation if you are in me. Everyone else was merely a foreshadow of the perfect intercessor, this one we have in Christ. Now, what's the application of this truth? Number one, no one can accuse. That was our first point. And here's the application. Therefore, we must be careful to reject all slander, gossip, and accusations. We do not fall within the paradigm of the way the Bible explains it to happen. Accusation is a major divisive issue in any church. I'm going to give you a little lesson on that this morning as we think about the application. Look over in the book of Proverbs. It's very instructive for us. I want you to follow along and see these. Mark them down. Refer to them later. Maybe memorize them. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 10 Start there, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 10. Look at the uh, language that Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, says. He says, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. Do you see quarreling? Do you see abuse? Get rid of the scoffers. It will leave. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 20. 26, verse 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Where there is no fuel, the fire goes out. Where there is no whispering, quarreling goes out. You might say, well, I don't know, it's not me. I'm not doing the whispering. I'm not doing the the gossiping, well, maybe you're guilty of merely being somebody that everyone feels very comfortable whispering and gossiping to. Maybe you're just a really good gossip recipient. Proverbs 17.4. Proverbs 17.4. This is a good reminder for us if, uh, if people keep talking to us. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Notice the evildoer is the listener. 
The liar is the listener. Why? Because it's not that difficult for some people to be confused and turned by a lying tongue. They're gullible. And you're evil if you listen to it, and you can become a liar if you give ear to it. You begin to echo and repeat. Just one more on this. Back in Proverbs 16, look over a little, maybe one page over, Proverbs 16, verse 28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. That's the power of a lie, can separate even close friends. Just looking now at a verse that I've got connected with a highlighter here in 17.9, which is also appropriate. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So what's the, uh, the application? The application for us as a body, us as a church, is may we be a place that intentionally develops a culture where whispering and gossip and slander and just the backbiting and the tail-bearing and the grumbling and the whispering is something that gets stopped either because you're the grumbler and you put a clamp on your mouth or because you're the one who typically listens to it and you just stop. And you send that person back to whomever they're grumbling about. What do we do instead? What do we put on? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 to 32 Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 32. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't you want to give grace to people? Don't you want to be a grace giver and not a gossip giver? Let's make that our goal. How about that? Why don't we make ourselves the kind of people that are just giving grace and receiving grace? So much better. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I mean, do you understand here, folks, that this is a pretty serious charge against those who who would be divisive. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. The very Holy Spirit of God is grieved by this kind of thing. And therefore, let all bitterness, verse 31, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. It's amazing how many times Paul brings this up in these churches. Look, the church at Ephesus was a good church. You just have to read the letter to the church in Revelation 2. You can read about it here, Ephesians. You can read 1st and 2nd Timothy. They were all letters written to that same church. It was an important church. Very significant church, large church, influential church, filled with godly teachers. In fact, Timothy is sent there, and and even the Apostle John ministered there. And if we understand our history correctly, John went there with Jesus' own mother, who was in that church. But it's this very church that receives correction like this. There was bitterness there. There was wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. And so what does he say instead? Put all that off and make this your goal. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. No one can bring an accusation against God's elect. Therefore, may God's elect not be the ones who are constantly bringing accusations. Number two, no one can condemn No one can condemn, and therefore, 
We have to be careful not to pass judgment. Be careful not to pass judgment, but instead keep all confrontation biblical. Among ourselves, by Matthew 18, towards leadership, 1 Timothy 5, and towards the divisive, Titus 3. God has not left us um, unaware of how to handle these things. And so if we do this in accordance with his will, in accordance with his word, I believe that he will honor that. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Therefore, may those who are in Christ not condemn one another, but only do that which is biblical and honoring to God and brings joy and delight to him as he sees his church functioning in the way that he intends it to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your time in your word this morning, and uh, though we have navigated through numerous passages of scripture, and uh, I trust not drifted too far from the text, I, I know that these were important lessons that you would have us to know and a good opportunity to refresh our memory. I pray, Father, that we as a body would be exemplary in these things, filled with um, love and humility, filled with grace and speech that is edifying and kind, that we would not be those who either whisper, slander, and cause controversy, or those who receive it. Pray that we would, with... Um, confidence that it would be your will, separate ourselves from those who conduct themselves that way, to avoid such people. Father, to bring them to repentance, and if they are not truly believers, that you would reveal them as such, and that you would rescue us from whatever damage the evil one would seek to do through their influence. Father, I pray for our families in the church that uh, even within their families, that, that we would be careful to exercise this very same caution, that we would be examples of families that love one another and encourage one another and build one another up, speak only words that are gracious. I pray for these five young men who are going to be heading off, that they would look back on their time and, and see that their homes were homes that were, were filled with love and were filled with tenderness and encouragement. Thank you that we can celebrate the achievements of, of our children. I pray that our children would feel the, the joy from their parents, that, that we as parents would learn how to build up our kids and not constantly push them or drive them or criticize them or make them feel like they're never living up, but rather that we would be to them as you are to us, a, a father, mother, pouring out lavish praise and encouragement upon them. We thank you for them and for the delight that they are to us. Father, I pray that they would see in us what you are to us. As we lift our voices in song at the end of our service together with these two hymns, I pray, Father, that they would be from hearts that are now perhaps even more informed about your truth and, and would be overflowing with joy and gratitude for all that you have done for us in Christ, our joy and our Redeemer, and in whose name we pray. Amen.